0: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
2: Nobody has gotten to where Joe Biden is today, having done as badly in those first few contests as he did. But the other reality of Democratic voters is that the single most important thing they were looking for was somebody that they thought was best positioned to take on Trump. And in the end, it consolidated around Biden. That's Dan Balls.
1: He's the longtime chief political correspondent for The Washington Post. Balls knows a thing or two about presidential nominating conventions. In a journalism career that spans more than 50 years, he has covered more than 20 of them. As we focus this week on the Republican National Convention, Balls joins us to help make sense of this political moment, the current state of the GOP, and where it goes from here. Then... Brenda Berkman, the first female firefighter in the history of the New York City Fire Department, speaks to us about her project, Monumental Women, and the importance of gender representation in public statues. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Dan Bowles is the chief correspondent covering national politics at The Washington Post, Known as the Dean of the D.C. Press Corps, Balls has spent his career covering presidential campaigns. He joins me to make sense of the RNC, the Trump campaign, and a most unusual election season. Dan Balls, thank you so much for joining the show. Preet, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I appreciate the time. So there's a lot going on politically, and I want to get to your impressions of the Democratic National Convention that's concluded And the republican national convention that is underway we're recording this on wednesday morning uh, halfway through the republican national convention but can i ask you a, a foundational question first why do we have conventions why do the parties have them what is the purpose
2: and do they make any sense in the modern era we have conventions because these are political parties these are political institutions and every so often there is a value in them coming together, both for kind of ordinary business, which can be conducted obviously, outside the view of the TV cameras, but also to present themselves to the country as a whole. And there are not very many opportunities for political parties to do that and for and for the nominees of those parties. And obviously, historically, political conventions were for the business of settling who was gonna be the party nominee. Now that's, that's long gone, Parties like to get their nomination battles over quickly, uh, as early as possible, so that they can unite the party well ahead of a general election and get ready for the general election. But there is value in a convention, and I think we're seeing it, we saw it with the Democrats last week, and we're seeing it with the Republicans this week. It's an opportunity to kind of put the best possible face you can on your nominee and the party. Um, there's so much dissonance all the way around at any given time in a campaign, and this is this is the one time when the party and the nominee can say this is who we want you to believe we are, you know. And they like say they put it in the most favorable light possible. They exaggerate in some cases. They distort and tell falsehoods, but nonetheless, this is something that they can do, and it's uh, there's no other opportunity that they really have in an in an unfiltered way to do that. So. You know, the question is how compelling are these modern conventions? And I would I would argue that what the Democrats did last week in having to reinvent the convention and make it all virtual gave some clues as to what we might see of conventions in the future. My guess is that we will see conventions that will be much more a mix between the old way and what we saw last week with the Democrats, and to some extent what we're seeing this week with the Republicans, just in terms of production.
1: So, for example, the way the Democrats did their roll call with videos from all 50 states, do you think that will become the norm or do you think we'll go back to the old-fashioned way of screaming in a convention hall?
2: Well, I hope, we, uh, I hope we go with what the Democrats did last week because I, I thought it was much more compelling and it obviously took much less time. I, I, was, I was struck by the Republicans this week because on Monday they held uh, an old-fashioned roll call in Charlotte. Um, which just felt you know, like it was you know, from another century. But then on <laughs> right. Monday night at the convention, they did a version of what the Democrats did. Clearly, they went to school on what they saw at the Democratic convention and put together a, a kind of a rapid round-the-country quasi-roll call that captured kind of the spirit of what the Democrats had done in a more, you know, in a more sophisticated way. So I think that in terms of those kinds of things, my guess is that we go we go into the future and not into the past.
1: I guess they did try to emulate the Democrats, but there was one, I think, glaring omission, and that was there was no calamari. <laughs> That's
2: true. Although there was there was a mention of the calamari in the traditional roll call uh, on Monday morning. Uh, in, in, oh, uh, I missed that. Yeah. I can't remember which who did it, but somebody made a mention of, of calamari. So
1: (laughs) before we get to, um, to the two current conventions, you've been to many, I think 20 something conventions personally. So, so two questions. One, do you miss going to a convention or two conventions this year, or are you happy to be doing it in your armchair? And then second, what are one or two of the most compelling and effective conventions of the past for either party?
2: Well, um, I do miss going to the convention. I mean, I there is value for reporters to be at a convention in addition to their you know their their fun events a, a colleague of mine said last week we're doing all the work that we normally do at a convention but we're not having any of the fun but put the fun aside if you're if you're at the convention you're moving around during the day before the evening program begins and you're you know either by planning or happenstance you are intersecting with people who give you ideas who help provide insights who provide real information for stories you're working on. There's lots of accidental things that happen at a convention that, that feed into the way we think about what we should be doing journalistically. And you can't do that, you know, sitting where I'm sitting, which is in a small you know, study in my house. You have to find people, people are dispersed. You can't, you can, in other words, you can't do that kind of reporting. And all of that goes into a kind of a, a mental database it doesn't necessarily produce that evening's story because the the stories of each evening are produced on the basis of what you know what's going on in the convention hall itself. But you you learn things and you you know you're constantly developing sources and knowledge. So in that sense, I do miss it. I wish I wish we were all able to to be there, but uh, you know the coronavirus makes that impossible. In, in terms of effective conventions. You know, one of the first conventions I, I was was at was the 1980 Republican Convention in Detroit. And I thought that, uh, you know, at the time, and I think looking back on it, that was a very effective convention. It was successful for Reagan in getting people to think about the Republican Party as a party with ideas, as a party on the ascendance. And to some extent, painting the Democrats not just divided, which they were, between Jimmy Carter and the Kennedy forces in the Kennedy wing of the party, the, the Democrats that year had a, a, a bad convention. But also just to just to give a, a sense of how the Republicans were changing. Um, and I, I think that was a very successful convention. Certainly the 1992 Democratic convention was very successful. Bill Clinton went into that convention trailing both George H.W. Bush and Ross Perot and came out of it, in part because Perot quit the race in the middle of the convention, came out of it with a tremendous amount of momentum, which they never really relinquished. And so that was a successful convention. Certainly the 2008 Democratic Convention in Denver, which nominated Barack Obama, was very much a successful convention. Support for
1: Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact-check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores, and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required. Equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there What's the proper audience for a political convention? Isn't it always the case that that it's it's not just the faithful, it's also to expand the base or not? And, and I, obviously, I'm asking the question with reference to how the Republicans are doing their convention.
2: Yeah. You know, I think for both parties, the audience that they count on is the audience that they're trying to energize. But, um, you know, going back to what I said at the beginning, the value of a convention is that you're likely to have people tuning in who are not. Loyalists and who are not necessarily, you know, political aficionados. They're not people who, you know, who are on Twitter all day following politics, or or even who are watching, you know, the cable shows, whichever cable channel they favor. The goal is to energize the people who are with you to get them to do all of the work they need to do in the fall, but also to try to get those people who are still open-minded or on the fence or however we want to describe it, persuadable. To get them to give you and your party um, and your nominee a look. So, but it's hard to tell this year exactly who is who is watching. And some of the data suggests there's been a fall off in TV viewing of the conventions. But there's also, I mean, last week, the Democrats were saying, yes, that may be the case, but um, people are looking at this convention on other platforms. And and, um, I don't have the data to, you know, to confirm or dispute that. And it it sounds plausible, certainly. But you're looking looking for people who aren't sewn up yet, if possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of young people don't have televisions. And so it becomes very hard to figure out what the metrics are. So at the Democratic convention last week, there were a number of people who were not sort of mainstream Democrats, in fact, people who are not Democrats at all, you know, avowed Republicans, conservatives. I don't know if that was effective or not, but by comparison, didn't see a lot of progressives at the Republican convention. Are they sort of willfully not trying to expand the audience and the base because they think it's futile or because the head of their party, the president, is headstrong? What explains it? And, and maybe you don't even agree with my premise that they're narrowcasting.
2: Well, I think they're doing a combination of two things. I think Monday night was more narrow casting. We had talked to people over the weekend who were helping to organize the convention, and everybody was saying, well, this was going to be a very positive and uplifting convention, et cetera, et cetera. Monday night was not particularly that by any means. You know, it was more dark, and it was obviously a lot of attacks on Biden, which are not unexpected, but nonetheless, it was not, you know, not the optimistic show that they, they were talking about. I thought the second night was, was different. They made a pivot. Certainly they are trying to do whatever they can to reinforce their base. I mean, one of the foundations of the Trump strategy this time is to maximize the vote of the people who voted for him last time and people like them who didn't necessarily turn out. So one of the things you saw on the second night, was a dairy farmer from Wisconsin, Battleground State. Somebody from the Iron Range in Minnesota, another state that the Trump people have always thought they could put into play. We don't know whether that will be the case, but nonetheless, a message. Messages from people in small towns and rural areas. That's the vote that they have to really maximize. They're going to get big margins in those areas, bigger than... Previous Republican nominees have gotten, but they also need bigger turnout even than they got in in 2016, in order probably to overcome some of the erosion they've had in suburban areas. But I thought that the the second thing they were trying to do was to, you know, in a sense, soften the edges of the president and soften the edges of the messages that he's put out for three and a half years so there was an emphasis on the number of women in the administration. Um, The speech by Melania Trump was a very different kind of message that was only in part aimed at the base. But I think that part of the strategy on on the second night was to say to people who, you know, there are a lot of people who either, you know, who voted for Trump uh, or thought about voting for Trump who are uneasy about many things about the way he handles himself particularly the tweets and the tone of things and i think what they're trying to do is to say to people okay we get that but look at this is somebody who still believes in you in a way that the democrats don't that the democrats are moving farther away from you and have even less respect for you than than you might have thought they had before and you didn't think they had that much this guy isn't perfect but he will get things done and he will get them done with you in mind. And I thought that that was very much a part of what they were were after. That's not exactly expanding the coalition, but it is trying to, to make sure that there is minimal erosion in some of those areas, and particularly suburban areas.
1: Further to that, the Democratic Convention and the Democratic nominee in particular have embraced this concept and notion of empathy, right? That Joe Biden cares about you. And there were lots of stories about his bonding with ordinary Americans, the elevator operator, uh, the conductors on the Amtrak. And I wondered what the Republican response would be. And part of the response has been, you know, that sort of weepy, Democratic nonsense, and Trump is a fighter. And they re- resisted this idea of, of empathy. But then I watched the first night of the convention, and it seemed to me there was something of a concession that people do care about that. You know, Jim Jordan, who yells a lot, took his few minutes to tell a story about the empathy of Donald Trump, uh, whether you you know like the story or not.
3: But what I also appreciate about the president is something most Americans never get to
1: see, how much he truly cares about people. And they had Donald Trump talk to people who had been rescued as, from, as hostages from other countries. Do you think that was an implicit concession, this sort of empathy bone has been missing from Trump and the party or not?
2: I do. I, I, I totally agree with that, that they were trying to do things— And they did that the second night with the with the pardon that they did. um, and and also the naturalization ceremony. I mean, we could talk you know about the use or misuse of federal assets and, and and the Hatch Act and all of that, but I'm not sure that, you know, the majority of Americans think that much about that. They're looking at you know, they're looking at what they're seeing. And I thought that both of those were again aimed at making him look, if not completely empathetic. Uh, as somebody who is not the, you know, if you will, the caricature that his opponents want to make you think he is. And so the challenge for Trump, of course, is that most Americans know what they think about him. And changing that impression is very, very difficult. I don't know whether a few kind of cameos on several nights at a convention can really do that. It might help in the short term. I don't know what the long term impact will be. But I think that they're They're trying to do that.
1: Well, you know, it calls to mind for some people, the 1988 campaign and coming out of the Democratic convention, Dukakis had, and I remember it was one of the earliest campaigns that I was sort of becoming aware of and following. Dukakis had a 17 point lead. And in the months between the convention and the election, the Bush campaign ran hard on law and order. And called Dukakis soft in various ways. And there was that famous Willie Horton ad.
3: Dukakis not only opposes the death
1: penalty, he allowed first-degree
2: murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis
1: on crime. And it worked. It worked. And Bush won by several points. Do you think we'll see a, a repeat of that? There's a lot of discussion of law and order and about violence, you know, ticking up in various cities. Is, is that a playbook that they're following or should follow?
2: Well, I think they are following it. I think they are, they're and they will continue to follow it. I think the law and order theme and, and beyond that, the, the riots in the street, the protests that have turned violent and, and continue to go on. I mean, Portland has not settled down. Now that's not a battleground state, but it's an image of of the country that the, the Republicans are trying to seize on. And and after the tragic events in in Kenosha over over the weekend, you know we're seeing violence break out there. Uh, they will use that. But if you go back to 1988, and and that's a good analogy. And my friend Adam Nagurney wrote an interesting piece in the New York Times over the weekend about. 1988 as a you know a kind of quote glimmer of hope unquote for the Trump campaign. One thing about 1988 is Dukakis got a big bump out of the convention in 1988 and and had that 17 point lead uh, in the Gallup tracking at that point or in the Gallup polls, which is what we all remember that Bush was down 17 points. I think by the time of Bush's convention, he was only down you know maybe six points, and he he came out of that convention slightly ahead of Dukakis and and never look back. Now obviously the the Willie Horton issue, the furlough issue in Massachusetts was one that they hit very hard. They also hit the Pledge of Allegiance uh, and the flag. Uh, Bush, as you remember, went to flag factories to highlight the idea that Dukakis was a quote card-carrying member of the ACLU, unquote, things like that. So it was a it was a theme they they hit very, very hard. Both at the convention and beyond that, but Bush came out of that convention with a lead. I don't know whether Donald Trump is going to come out of this convention with a lead. I would be surprised; he might narrow the gap, but he's got a big gap to narrow.
1: He says he's leading. He's leading the polls. He says that all the time. <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> he says a lot of things. <laughs> he does. You know, this may this may
1: be a trivial question, but it occurs to me that it, it sometimes is important who goes first and who goes second.
2: Do the parties always jockey to be the, to go second? No, generally the party that holds the White House goes second. That's that's been the tradition. So I see. But wh- why
1: why w- why would the other party concede that tradition if they get an advantage to going second? Do you, do you think that a party gets an advantage by going second?
2: Well, I I don't know. I'd have to. it's a question I've never been asked, and I don't. I'd have to think back of of the conventions. You know, the Democrats went second in nineteen eighty, and and uh, sure didn't help them. Um, it hurt them. Hurt them worse. In nineteen ninety two, the Democrats went first and it it helped Clinton. So I don't know, Phil Rucker, my colleague and I, Phil's our uh, White House bureau chief, uh, we, we talked to uh, Ronna McDaniel over the weekend and she said she was grateful that they were going second because she had watched the Democratic convention, as she said, watching it in one eye with a, just a totally nonpartisan look just to kind of analyze what works, what doesn't. And she said, you know, I've never been so grateful that we were second because you know, obviously the world's, world's different, but I think it depends on kind of the nature of the year and the quality of the candidates and the quality of the convention they put together that, that makes a difference, not necessarily who goes first and who goes second.
1: Can we talk about the substance for a moment? A lot has been made of the fact that this Republican convention is missing something that every other convention from both parties has always had, and that's a thing called a platform. Does it make a difference? Does anybody read the I I've never I follow politics, I'm not in politics. I don't think I've ever read a platform of either party. I'm aware of some of the planks because they get talked about and they get debated. But what is what is the significance of no platform?
2: Well, the significance of the Republicans not having a platform is it crystallizes as if we needed further evidence that this is a party that is a wholly owned subsidiary of of Donald Trump. And if you looked at their quote unquote, platform resolution, the only plank in the platform was, a, you know, just a robust, full-throated endorsement of President Trump for a second term. It had nothing to do with what the Republican Party stands for, nothing to do with what the abiding principles of the party are, nothing to do with what, what it means to be a conservative uh, in America in 2020. And I think in part because there's a lot of division within the Republican Party, about what they do stand for at this point, thanks primarily to Donald Trump, who you know who is not by any stretch of the imagination a, a traditional conservative. I mean, he has governed in conservative ways and that's made conservatives happy and, and more willing to stick with him despite some of the problems that he creates for them. But there's nothing that we see that shows that the Republican Party knows exactly who they are or what they stand for. So I think in this case, um, it was that acknowledgement. You're right. Platforms come and go very quickly. Once they're done, people do not read them and very often nominees ignore them if they find pieces of the platform uh, that are, you know, that are distasteful to them or that that go against exactly what they think. The process of putting a platform together, it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the you know, the, the value of a convention. Again, it is once every four years that the party And and all parts of the party come together to try to say, this is what we stand for. And there's a lot of compromise that goes into it. Um, And there's, you know, there there are battles and there are winners and losers in every platform debate. But out of that, you do get a sense of kind of where the consensus of a party is at any given point. And so um, while nobody reads them um, and nobody, I don't think anybody necessarily votes on them there is value in going through that exercise.
1: But is there any disadvantage that will come to pass for Trump this year not having one?
2: No, I don't think so, because I think we know what his policies have been and are likely to be. And I think that that's preeminent. Well, I I think the other aspect of this, Preet, is that this is not necessarily going to be a campaign decided on the details of issues. Both Trump and Biden have positions and policies that they're going to be advancing. But so much of this election is about the incumbent, a referendum on the incumbent. And that goes beyond the policy debate itself as to who he is and what he would do if he has another four years. The only, I would say, the only policy issue or issues that matter right now are the coronavirus pandemic and related to that, the economy and what has happened to it is this election
1: the greatest referendum on an incumbent that you've seen can you think of another one where it was
2: so much about the incumbent well this is more than more so than ever because i think because president trump has made himself so much the focus of attention over his time in office and because he has so divided the country there's a there's a statistic which is kind of the the degree to which a president is a polarizing figure. And it, it's, it's based on a president's approval rating among members of his or her own party.
0: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: And the approval rating among members of the opposite party. And Donald Trump is the most polarizing president we've ever had. Now, the second most polarizing based on those same numbers, is Barack Obama. And the third most polarizing is George W. Bush. So um, we are in a polarized country, and Trump has intensified that and and made it, I think, even more personal in the way people who either love him or despise him approach him. And so I think that that makes this uh, a bigger referendum than we've probably seen in the past. And I think it's also heightened by what we're going through as a country right now. Can I ask a question about how you
1: look at conventions, and not just conventions, but at politics generally? You pride yourself on being a nonpartisan political journalist, and there's great value in that. But when you watch a convention speech, to pick one example, what's the lens through which you're looking at it? Are you sort of thinking about it as a person who's going to write about it? Are you thinking about it as whether it's effective or not? Uh, are you rooting for them to talk about a particular thing that you, as a private citizen, care about, but that you won't express publicly? I'm just, I'm just wondering how you. What is your mindset when you watch politics unfold?
2: Well, I, I mean, it's two things. One is uh, obviously the degree to which people are are telling a reasonable version of the truth and reality, or how much you know they're they're not. I mean, that's that's one measure. But the other measure is how effective this might be. And again, uh, in watching the Tuesday night. Uh, events of the republicans you know there were a number of speeches which i thought just were were way beyond truth the pam bondi speech in which she was talking about what she was going after hunter biden but she was talking about what the former vice president did vis a vis ukraine and it's just completely contrary to everything we know about the role he was playing at the time uh, on the other hand as i talked about earlier I thought there were things as I watched that I said to myself, this could have real effect. This could begin to bring some people back um, or intensify support where they needed it. And so what are some examples of that? um, Well, I mean, starting with the speech that, that Melania Trump gave. I mean, this is the first time anybody at this convention has acknowledged in a direct way the suffering that people have gone through and are going through.
1: My deepest sympathy goes out to everyone who has lost a loved one and my prayers are with those who are ill or suffering
2: i mean it compared to larry kudlow who talked about the the pandemic in the past tense she talked about it in the present tense and i thought that 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 was an effective message for somebody around the president to be able to deliver uh, to people who were watching and obviously you've got the biggest audience in that 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. hour. So I thought that was effective. I thought Eric Trump's speech had a mix of things, some things that I thought were, you know, were over the top. But I also thought in terms of delivering a message about, okay, my father is a strong leader and he's got a lot of people who are against him, but he's sticking with you. And I thought that there were elements of that speech that were effective. So, you know, again, one night is one night. Uh, A lot will depend on who we see Thursday night when President Trump <laughs> gives his speech and how he chooses to to do it and and whether it is whether it squares with what people think about Donald Trump or not and, and how the reaction is. But as a as a journalist at the Washington Post, I mean, we're trying to present an event like this in its totality. Political effectiveness if there's political effectiveness, distortions pointed out if there are distortions pointed out. The appropriation of the federal government on behalf of the president uh, when they do it. So we, we we try to do all of it. But as I watch it, I'm you know I'm I'm trying not to think about it simply through my own personal views of the world, but through through a more evaluative measurement.
1: Can we talk about a couple of speakers at the convention in two dimensions? One, how they did at the convention, and then two, how they did for purposes of their own future and potentially as candidates for president themselves, and I think there are a few of those folks, some of whom have not spoken yet. One is Nikki Haley. How did she do? And with an eye towards her future. I mean, do you think when you answer, do you think she's an almost certain presidential candidate in
2: 2024? I would be surprised if she is not a candidate in 2024. I mean, everything she has done over a number of years points in that direction. I think everybody who follows politics closely was looking at her on monday night as a prospective 2024 candidate i thought her speech was a strong speech i thought she she delivered a message that she wanted to deliver which was some about herself and 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 some about the country and some about the president interestingly compared to a number of other people who served uh, in the trump administration she she has managed to walk a line pretty carefully between projecting some independence while also projecting tremendous loyalty to the president. I was struck by one aspect of that speech, and and I give Dana Bash from CNN credit for picking up on it literally in the moment. When she talked about the shootings at the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, she talked about how they were able to remove a divisive symbol um, right. right, I saw that. Right, in a, in a, you know, without controversy.
3: After that horrific tragedy, we didn't turn against each other. We came together, black and white, Democrat and Republican. Together, we made the hard choices needed to heal and removed a divisive symbol peacefully and respectfully.
2: What she could not say, in part because of what the president has done and and to some extent what part of the party believes in, she could not say what she did, which was to get rid of the Confederate flag on the grounds of the state Capitol. That has been a long fight in South Carolina, as you know. Uh, it used to be on the top of the Capitol. They brought it down, but it was still on the Capitol grounds. And after that, she moved very, very directly and very swiftly after those shootings to remove it. Um, but she could not say that uh, on Monday night. I, I was struck by that. But other, But other than that, I thought it was a speech that will certainly help her.
1: Do you think that her candidacy in 2024 will be helped or hurt by Trump getting reelected? You know, in which way does it go for her?
2: I don't know how to answer that. I can't answer that at this point. You could you argue- could You don't argue, have a crystal ball? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I'd, I'd have been a lot smarter for a lot more We could more call years. you crystal balls then. Um,
1: <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been called that before. I have not, no. Prediction is very difficult these days, I, I know. But yeah. you know, I, I had you, so I thought I would ask.
2: No, I guess what I was going to say is that if Donald Trump wins a second term, everybody who runs for president in 2024- is going to have to be maneuvering through another 4 years of his presidency and leadership and and no doubt controversy if he is defeated then the party will enter into a debate about its future with him not gone from the stage i don't think you know i don't think that will be the case i think donald trump no. will, will remain <laughs> will <not>. in our <laughs> remain in our public uh, life for quite some time but it would it it might be easier to begin that process if Trump is not in office, rather than if he is. Do you think there'll be two factions?
1: There'll be sort of the people who want to perpetuate Trumpism, and then, you know, these these other Republicans, some of whom spoke at the Democratic Convention, do they would try to come back to the Republican fold and wrest the party back from the Trumpists, people like John Kasich and others? Or is Trumpism sort of the dominant force in the Republican Party for the foreseeable future, even if Trump
2: loses? Well, I think it's a I think it is a primary force within the Republican Party. But if he loses, the debate will be different than if he wins again. If he loses, there will be a, a more a more vigorous debate about what the party ought to be and how much of of Trumpism should remain, and how much should it become once again a traditional conservative party. I don't know, even under those circumstances, the degree to which never Trumpers will be welcomed back in or will try to fight to be brought back in or to get back in. I don't know that John Kasich would try to do that. I mean, the reality is John Kasich is a, something of an outcast in the Republican Party as it stands today. I think when he left office in Ohio, you might check me on this, but my recollection is that his approval rating in Ohio was a bit stronger with Democrats than it was with Republicans. So, if you are a Never Trumper, it might be harder to come back in than if you have been a quiet supporter of Trump. But we're going to, you know, we're going to see a bunch of people who are going to vie for the crown in 2024, who will all, in one way or another, have to take in some aspect of uh, of Trump. Um, but how they do that is going to be very, very uh, treacherous, I think.
1: Do you think one of those people will actually have the last name Trump, uh, as in Donald
2: Trump Jr.? I suppose it's possible. But if President Trump loses, then the question is, does the party really have an appetite to go back to a Trump to try to pull it again? Maybe, I mean, maybe he would try to do that to, you know, reclaim the family name. And um, Well, George, George W. Bush did it. It took him eight years, not four, right? Yes, but um, George W. Bush always had his eye on politics. He had run for the House in 1978. He was looking to run for governor. He was somebody who had a political career and a political bone in, as part of his, his being. Donald Trump Jr. comes to it fresher. Now, his father proved that that's not an impediment, but I I don't know in the end whether he will run or not.
1: What about another TV personality like Tucker Carlson?
2: Um. You know, anything's possible in this world. I mean, one of the, really, I <laughs> that mean, that is of the, certainly true. I, I I did a piece with fact was, check, true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I did a piece. This was sometime last year, which was at the suggestion of our national editor, Stephen Ginsburg, who, who basically said it, it just looks as though people have a different measuring stick for what they think about when they think about who might be president. And as I make this point, I'm in no way comparing Barack Obama and Donald Trump. But the truth is that each of them had a biography that made them very unlikely nominees of a political party, uh, and then to become elected president. I mean, the the Obama biography, which everybody knows, is one in which he had very little national experience. And Donald Trump had absolutely none. But each had something, you know, in a sense, special about the way they thought about. How they wanted to run for president, what the message was that they wanted to deliver, um, that they were able to galvanize voters in a way that you might not have expected given their biography. So I think that's the kind of thing that opens this up to all kinds of people, at least thinking about running and trying to run. But there, you know, there's a difference between you know wanting to run and being an effective candidate. And we've seen time and time again people who on paper look like they might be good candidates who get into the arena and and are, you know, are just woeful um, and often don't make it to the starting line and certainly don't make it anywhere close to the finish line. So, but yes, I think that there could be, you know, a Tucker Carlson or a Don Jr. or whoever, along with traditional politicians running in 2024.
1: No, there are a lot of people, Wesley Clark, Jeb Bush, Rudy Giuliani, all were considered to be, you know, top favorites to win nominations at one point, and none of them made it. This effort of the GOP to paint Biden as part of the radical left, is that going to work? Does that have any
2: holding power? It has some potential, but so far it hasn't had much effect. Biden is obviously difficult to caricature uh, or to describe as a hard left candidate. What we're seeing at the Republican convention is the notion that he is he is not his own man, that he is not strong, that he's relatively weak, and therefore he will be controlled by forces, particularly from the left and the radical left as the Republicans are describing it. That obviously has some resonance, but but primarily with people who are already with Trump who are, you know, who are not on the fence. But if he does things that in one way or another give a nod to that, you know, the, the Republicans will, you know, will do it. I, I was struck by the Opening video last night, the opening sequence, which showed Bernie Sanders and a long, you know, a long hold on the 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 squad, and an image of Castro and an image of Che Guevara, all to say that that this is Biden's world. Um, And if you elect Joe Biden, that's what you're really getting. The Trump campaign has tried various things over four, five, six months to go after him, whether that he's, you know, that he's a doddering, somewhat you know, senile old man um, that he's captured by the left, that he's, you know, that he was too harsh in passing the crime bill and therefore bad for black America. I mean, and we've seen some of that at this convention. They haven't yet settled on one thing, although based on this convention, you would have to assume that their belief is their best opportunity now is to tie him to the left. But Biden has an opportunity to, you know, to rebut that and, one issue is defunding the police, which, you know, we've heard a lot about at the convention this week, but which he has said repeatedly he is against. Now, people will say, well, he may say that, but the left wing will force him to do it anyway. But again, that I think that's the hardcore Trump support who says it. A lot of this is a reason why the debates could be very important this year, and particularly that first debate on September 29th because that will be a moment in which the two of them will, in essence, take their best arguments and throw at the other. Um, And we'll see how both of them stand up to that kind of, you know, that kind of vigorous back and forth and and who emerges as somebody who's more credible than the other.
1: So paint a scenario in which either person's performance is such that it would cause minds to shift in a material way.
2: Well, I think if Biden had a faltering debate, that would be potentially quite detrimental to him. Um, if he looked like he was not in command of, you know, of everything, um, I think that would hurt him. If he were to respond overly defensively about things, I mean, one thing we've seen in, in Biden is that when he is challenged, he doesn't like it. And I think one, one challenge for him in the debate will be to kind of keep his cool as Trump tries to get under his skin. Um, because sometimes when he has, you know, gotten into situations like that, he said things um, that he, you know, that he's regretted, particularly, I mean, that one comment that he made about, you know, if, if you're thinking about voting for Trump, you ain't black. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, they may be, they may seem like they're small things or that they happen in an incident and then they go away, but they can, they can have a lasting impact. You know, Reagan's debate in 1984, where he looked, you know, he looked like he was wandering off the Pacific Coast Highway in his you know, closing <laughs> statement, um, caused a great deal of, you know, concern. And he had- to, but You can always come back in debate two. You can. Like you can did. come back in debate two and, and debate three. For Trump, I think, um, again, it's hard to think about how images of Trump are going to be changed.
1: Yeah. I mean, with respect to Trump, I, I, I'm trying to, conceive of anything he could do that would cause him to lose his base of support, up to and including shooting someone if they do the debate on Fifth Avenue? <laughs>
2: well, I mean, it, I, I think that's the case. I mean, I think his base is just, you know, is locked in and will believe him. But, but he, he can't win this with 40 or 42 percent of the vote. I mean, he needs, he needs more than that. So he obviously needs something beyond that, that base that is, you know, that will, will accept him no matter what he does.
1: Well, you can get 42% along with some suppression, and that's maybe a formula for victory, no?
2: Well, um, maybe. I mean, we're not going to have the third party, size of third-party voting, it doesn't look like, that we had in 2016. Um, and so even if there's suppression of the vote, he's still got to get above that. I mean, uh, you know, if you look at past history, and it's always risky with Donald Trump because he's constantly defying what we think of as norms in, in all ways— Incumbent presidents don't usually get a lot more vote percentage than their approval rating. His approval rating right now seems quite tied to people's perceptions of how he's done with the coronavirus. So he's got to bump that up. He's got to convince people in a way that he hasn't yet that he has done the right thing with the coronavirus and therefore his overall numbers will go up and therefore his his vote share will go up. That's a challenge. I'm not saying it can't happen. He surprised people in 2016 and could do so again. And I think Democrats, smart Democrats, are wise to say we, you know, we ought not to just think these polls are locked in concrete and we don't have to worry much. We just kind of have to go through the motions. I mean, they're, they've got to get their vote out. They've they've got to work hard to get all of their vote out. And I I would guess that the Republicans, I know the Republicans have had a huge head start on that, um, just because know, Biden had to go through a nomination process and the Trump campaigns had, you know, all of that time uh, to identify the voters that they think they need and, and to begin to communicate the messages that they they want them to hear.
1: Can we just pause on that for a second? So obviously Joe Biden is the nominee, but almost five minutes ago, nobody thought he would be the nominee. He didn't seem to be anyone's, you know, darling or favorite. And he lost the first few races. As you look back on it, this is not prognostication now. It's sort of Looking back and doing a postmortem, was it always the case that Joe Biden would be the inevitable nominee?
2: Did things ha- like how do you explain that Joe Biden is the nominee? I give a certain amount of credit to the Biden campaign and and to uh, Mike Donlin, who's not well known. He's the brother of Tom Donlan, the former National Security Advisor, a political strategist who's has kept a very low profile over the years. I had a conversation with him before Biden became a candidate in the spring of 2019. And he laid out for me the the kind of theory of the case. And in his thinking, this was going to be a campaign about Donald Trump. And this was going to be a campaign which has become part of the slogan of the Biden folks, a battle for the soul of the country. And that the political class was going to be obsessed on Twitter with, you know, all the things the political class gets obsessed with day to day, but that average voters were not. And that if you looked at all of the two dozen people who were running for the Democratic nomination, this is is Mike's view of it, and and I think it's borne out, that Biden was the most acceptable across the broadest stretch of the Democratic Party. Um, Not that he didn't have weaknesses, not that Bernie Sanders didn't have some obvious strengths, particularly with younger voters, but with people who often make the difference in a nomination battle. Biden was best positioned. He had, obviously, he had strong support in the African American community and particularly with older African Americans, who again are more likely to turn out both in primaries and general election than, than younger African Americans. Um, he had more support with older voters. Um, and again, they turn out in bigger numbers in primaries than do than younger voters. That he was acceptable, if not loved, by people who might like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or whoever, and that it was likely to be, you know, a protracted battle. But in the end, all of those things would prevail for Joe Biden. And the second was that Democratic voters knew him and liked him, that his, that his early lead in the polls was not based simply on name identification, but had something more to do with or as much or more to do with that people knew him and, and had respect for him uh, and, and admiration for him. If you think about it in that way, then yes, he was inevitable. But you know, they ran a terrible campaign in Iowa, and he was not a particularly good candidate in Iowa. Nobody has gotten to where Joe Biden is today, having done as badly in those first few contests as he did. But the other reality of Democratic voters is that the single most important thing they were looking for was somebody that they thought was best positioned to take on Trump. And in the end it consolidated around Biden. So I guess, yes, uh, it always was inevitable. I mean, somebody said to me, (laughs) somebody said to me early on when I asked, you know, who do you think, who do you think wins? And they said, well, you know, I think Biden will be the last candidate standing, um, which is not to say he's going to go out and win it, but that eventually he'll prevail.
1: Final question. The Rose Garden, has it been improved or not improved?
2: Well, I think we will have to f- <laughs> await the spring. Uh, I mean I mean uh, some of the pictures
1: That's a dodge. That's an
2: incredible dodge. No, because I mean the rose garden blooms when the roses bloom. It doesn't bloom in the middle of July and pictures that, you know, comparing the old rose garden with the new had a lot of tulips and tulips tulips aren't in bloom in in the summer. So I thought that moving the trees was, you know, uh, it looks, you know, it looks more bare, but um, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the, the spring to see what it really looks like. So if that's a dodge, that's a dodge. But my, no, my, my wife, I'll the gardener would.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it to you. There's you know a lot of attention paid to. It. I got in trouble. I posted on Twitter when I said at this particular moment, I really don't care about the Rose Garden. And some people took offense. I think we you know we have to prioritize things uh, sometimes, depending on on where you are in the world <laughs> and where the world is. Um, and i don't I don't have a strong opinion about the Rose garden. and I'm aided now by your suggestion that we wait. Dan Balls, thank you so much for making the
2: time. It was really great to visit with you. thank you. I appreciate it. it was It was good to be with you.
1: My conversation with Dan Balls continues for members of the Cafe Insider community consider becoming a Cafe Insider. You can try it out free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. Insiders get bonus stay-tuned content, the exclusive weekly podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram, the Cyberspace podcast with John Carlin, the United Security podcast co-hosted by Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein, audio essays by Ellie Honig and me, and more. Again, to get a free two-week trial, head to cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. Captain Brenda Berkman joined me on Stay Tuned last year to talk about the struggle she faced on her journey to becoming the first female firefighter in the history of the New York City Fire Department. We caught up with her this week because a project to which she has devoted much of her energy since retirement has finally come to fruition. Monumental Women is a nonprofit that aims to increase representation and awareness of women in public spaces across New York and America. Yesterday, just one week after the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, Monumental Women unveiled the Women's Rights Pioneers Monument, the first statue of historical women in Central Park. The monument features suffragists Sojourner Truth, Susan B. Anthony, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Captain Berkman joined us to reflect on why it was so important to bring statues of real women into the park.
3: People had to come to the realization that there were no women in Central Park, no depictions of real women in Central Park in the 167 year history of the park. You know, we had the nymphs, we had Mother Goose, we had Alice in Wonderland, but we had no real women. Meanwhile, we had uh, 23 historical men that were depicted in the park. And, you know, the really shocking thing was that people didn't even notice this. They were like, really? There's no women, no real women in Central Park when you talk to them about it? And so Monumental Women formed a nonprofit. It's an all-volunteer organization organization to advocate for the placement of real women in Central Park. And then we had to decide, you know, what real women? So the group, which is all volunteer, came up with three women, Elizabeth Katie Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Sojourner Truth. All three of these women were ardent abolitionists. They were threatened, their lives were threatened when they went to speak against slavery. They organized petitions that that got the signatures of hundreds of thousands of people we're talking about these three women did this and and they met together they were on the same stages they were all new Yorkers that was another thing it was insisted that the women had to be new Yorkers and new requirement There hadn't been a a statue of of anybody added to the park in over 60 years, almost 70 years. So new requirement, we don't know where it came from. That is, we had to prove that they had been in the park. (laughs) Now, Shakespeare and uh, Columbus and um, Robert Burns and all the other guys that are on literary walk They had never been in the park. The park didn't even exist when they were alive. So, but we had to show that that these three women had been in Central Park. And we were able to show that because they were all New Yorkers. And Stanton, for instance, took her kids into the park. Anthony took long walks in the park. Truth was all around New York in her lifetime in New York City. And so, um we were able to to show that they deserve to be in the park.
1: Truth, Anthony, and Katie Stanton were contemporaries who fought alongside one another for the abolition of slavery and the universal suffrage of women. Captain Berkman explains what makes these women monumental and the lessons their stories offer for the current moment.
3: It's so great to show that women, a group of women, all three of them together, working together, were able to accomplish things true They never were able to actually vote themselves. Both Anthony and Truth tried to vote in the 1872 presidential election. Anthony actually got to cast her vote, but then later she was arrested (laughs) for voting. Truth went to the polls to register and they would not allow her to register. So she never even got a chance to try and cast her vote. Does this sound familiar? I mean... Is this a story for today? These three women's lives should inspire us today. You know, that's why monumental women picked them. Because of their determination, their strategies. The the suffrage movement designed all kinds of political strategies that had never been done before, such as, I'm not saying these three women, but in the movement as it changed and morphed as women suffragists tried to figure out how do we get this done how do we do this it's taken us decades we finally three generations after the suffrage movement started in the mid 1800s finally in 1920 the amendment was ratified the 19th amendment was ratified But it wasn't without a lot of suffering. Women went to jail. They were force fed. Women demonstrated in front of the the White House. That was a new thing. Nobody had ever demonstrated in front of the White House. What did the Secretary of the Navy do? He sent sailors over to beat up the women demonstrators. There were mobs that attacked the women demonstrators. There were mobs that attacked the women's suffrage parade in 1913. This is the right time to be looking at these three women's lives and the entire suffrage movement.
1: Captain Berkman, a lifelong student of history, also explains why telling the stories of marginalized groups has been such a constant in her own journey.
3: I was a woman firefighter for 25 years. I brought the lawsuit that got the first women hired in New York City for the FDNY as firefighters. And then when I retired a few years back, I I became an artist and a volunteer. But my whole life, I have been very interested in history, and I've been interested in groups that have been unrepresented in our history curriculum. So starting as a very young girl when I was in third grade, trying to read all of the landmark history series for, for uh, young people, and discovering in my school library that there were almost no books about the history of women and people of colors contributions and other groups immigrants you know social movements there was almost no history you know it was the, what was probably known as the great white man's uh history of the united states and that bothered me a lot even as a little kid i thought oh my goodness i know that other groups have contributed to the many things that have happened and in the history of the United States and the accomplishments that have made us the the country that we are today, how come nobody studies them? How come nobody writes them? How come when I went to graduate school and I was a teaching assistant, there wasn't even a lecture on women's history in the survey course that I was helping uh, kids learn? So, you know, I started I started doing history myself. And so when I had the opportunity to become part of Monumental Women, of course, it was something, this was something that I was going to do. I mean, it's part of my DNA as a person to make sure that, you know, try and, and make sure that uh, the histories of all different kinds of people are not only preserved, but also honored. And this is what monumental women's uh, mission is. So, of course, I was going to get involved.
1: Debates over who deserves monuments are a political constant in 2020. Captain Berkman reflects on the complicated ethics surrounding public commemoration.
3: There is no perfect person to be honored. And, um, you know, President Obama has talked about the cancel culture that we're currently in, that you have to look at the totality of people's work and lives in order to decide whether or not they should be the models for our children. There are almost no statues of women at all. In the 150 statues of people in New York City, there are five, five of women. Now there's six. So it's not like we... You know, we're done. We can do it. We've done it. We don't have to honor women and people of color anymore. We've done it. We've got our first African American honored inside the confines of Central Park. Sojourner Truth. Okay, we're done now. The thing is that that I was talking to one of our other board members, Namita Luthra. I asked Namita if I could read some words that she had to say about this issue of, you know, who who do we honor in our In our public spaces. She put it this way. She says that in our Monument and Women's History Education campaign, we want to convey that these three generations of women suffragists of all colors who fought for the vote are national heroes, Ken Burns says this in our unveiling ceremony. And today,
1: we remember the work and lives of three extraordinary women who I believe are among the most important people in our country's history. The fiery orator Sojourner Truth, the brilliant writer Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and the shrewd political activist Susan B. Anthony. They will, for generations now, stand in Central Park to remind us of their day, our collective history, and the
3: work ahead. Creating a beautifully seamless connection between the past, the present, and our hope-filled future. And they're not just women's rights heroes. That their tactics deserve studying and critiquing like military generals because they were in the fight of their lives. Girls, we need to see the whole of their humanity and the whole of their strategies. Girls don't even know this history at the most rudimentary level, I would add, boys don't know it either. Their names, Alice Paul, Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, Carrie Chapman Cat, and on and on, let alone the incredibly astute public relations, media, and political strategies they implemented, many which never been employed before.
1: The sculptor Meredith Bergman Brought symbolism and historical reference into every element of the Women's Rights Pioneers Monument.
3: She was confined by a number of different factors. One is she had to design a monument which fit in with the 19th century monuments that are already on Literary Walk. So, this essentially is what should have been put in to that space in the 19th century when all these other guys were put in, right? So that that's number one. So if you look at this and you think, well, that's kind of old-timey, right? It looks like it's from the 19th century. Well, that's an intention. The great thing about it is, though, it shows three people working together. It shows the power, the power of community and people working together to achieve their goals. And every aspect of the monument has meaning. Why does Sojourner Truth have knitting in her lap? What is that all about? You know, people today was like, oh, that's so old fashioned. Why Why would you show a woman with knitting? Well, for Sojourner Truth and the women of her time, knitting was very important. First of all, it was a patriotic act during the Civil War to knit for the Union soldiers. And Sojourner Truth did that. And she was very active in the Union cause. Second thing about it was that as a, as a formerly enslaved person, as a slave, she would not have been taught necessarily how to knit. It was one of those skills like reading that slave owners did not teach to their enslaved people. So Sojourner Truth never learned to read, but she did learn to knit. And she was very proud of that. And she wanted to be a model for her people. That this is a this is something that you can do, that you can show your contributions, your your value is this particular thing. Similarly, with Sam and Anthony, the design of their clothing, the use of sunflowers on Sam's dress, which was a name she adopted herself, a nom de plume. When she was a writing, a sunflower was a name that she adopted, and she has sunflowers on her dress. Uh, Truth was very conscious of her image, and so her dress also reflects how she would She would dress as a lady, you know, for her photographs, which she then sold to support her work. And it was very important to her that she be portrayed as a lady. It's accurate to showing the finger that was lopped off of Truth's Truth's hand in in an agricultural accident that happened when she was enslaved. It shows Truth speaking. That's what she was known for. Anthony, organizing which is what she was famous for advocating and organizing women all over the country in her alligator bag with all the pamphlets including an announcement of a truth lecture it's all there and Stanton was famous for writing she's holding a pen over a blank sheet of paper she's about to start taking down thoughts and writing and so it all all has meaning and i would urge visitors to the park to spend time in front of the monument and listen to the words of these women and take in the meaning of all of this. Not just sort of walk by and say, oh, three women, okay, it's Truth, Anthony, and Stanton. Onward to the hot hot dog stand. You know, this is the first, the first women who are honored in Central Park. Give them your attention and then learn more about them. Learn about their lives the obstacles that they had to overcome, be inspired by them. And then help us, those of us working around the country, including monumental women, help us to bring women's history to the public and to make it more of a part of our cultural conversation, our historical conversation.
1: Captain Berkman welcomed guests to the unveiling.
3: What a great day. At long last, we are celebrating the unveiling of Sojourner Truths, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony.
1: And former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was there in person, too, offering an inspiring message about the suffrage movement.
0: These three women worked side by side, not only on suffrage, but also on abolition. All three wanted universal suffrage for all Americans and were not happy when men of color got the vote without women. They had passionate disagreements and Sojourner Truth spoke out against the racism she experienced as a black woman, including too often at the hands of white suffragists. Because while the passage of the 19th amendment was a critical, important, historic victory, it was also an incomplete one.
1: To watch yesterday's full unveiling of the historic sculpture, visit monumentalwomen.org. If you're in Central Park, head to Literary Walk and download the Talking Statues app, where you can hear audio content. And head to cafe.com for longer documentary videos about Captain Brookman's work. While you're there, you can also check out my September 2019 Stay Tuned interview with Captain Berkman. And if you haven't already, listen to last week's Stay Tuned episode featuring Johns Hopkins history professor Martha S. Jones, who discusses the lost stories of Black suffragist leaders. Thank you, Captain Brenda Berkman, for all of the work that you're doing. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, Dan Balls and Brenda Berkman. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Sam ozer Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.